Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This week, we're offering four conversations around the general topic of cirrhosis treatment and drug development. Jorn Schottenberg begins this conversation by introducing listeners to some of the special challenges he considers when treating cirrhosis patients, noting the breadth of the diagnosis, differences in treatment at different points of decline, and the idea that Nash cirrhosis entails treating two liver diseases at once. Stephen Harrison continues the conversation by discussing historic views on cirrhosis drug development and reasons these might be changing. This episode is full of big thoughts and, to use an old-fashioned phrase, has the potential to shift the paradigm on Nash drug development. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion group. Roger Green. We've actually been getting questions to do an episode about cirrhosis virtually since February. And the point in February was after the FDA webcast at the end of January, where they stressed the idea that you might have a path to approval without a phase four if you went through cirrhosis. People immediately started wondering, gee, how can I take advantage of that? And is this podcast going to talk about that at all? So that was the first time. I think the most important part, though, is the outcome part, which is that cirrhosis is the step after NASH and before a lot of really bad things happen. Hepatocellular carcinoma, transplant, sometimes if you can't get a transplant or either way, death, and really on a three-year progression cycle. So this is severe and this is fast and particularly important because the buildup is so widely ignored. Tony Biliotti was talking about last week, relatively few people with cirrhosis know that even as they're walking around. I think Tony's number was about half. Stephen has published a study that says that 37% of the people who think they're doing great are walking around with NAFLD, 14% with NASH, 6% F2 or F3, which means some of those are on that path to cirrhosis. So we're not getting to people until really late. And therefore, they're late, they're close to a severe event. And as of now, we don't exactly know what's going to work. If you go back to Jorn's um, piece on the NASH graveyard, for example, there are drugs that have failed more than have succeeded. And we don't know what the lessons are there. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to turn to Jorn. We're going to make sure to talk today about the disease itself and maybe about, and about diagnostics. And if we get to drugs, that's great. And if we don't get to drugs, then we'll reconvene this group within a few weeks and we'll go back and do part two. Jorn, floor is yours. Jorn Schottenberg. Thanks, Roger. And I guess the first thing I'd like to say is that when we say cirrhosis, this covers such a broad range of patients being affected. You know, you mentioned the clinically obvious cirrhotic patient that has decompensated cirrhosis. And this is a total different story than a patient that works around pretty much feels fine, maybe doesn't have really abnormal tests that we would do today, but a stiffness. And I remember Kankuzi on this session talking about two cases with elevated LFTs and, and transient elastography results suggesting cirrhosis. So these patients are clearly very different from the end-stage patients that might be picked up by most clinicians on, on physical exams. So also coming back to the histological fibrosis stage F4, this is such a broad disease spectrum that we have to subsegment it into clinically meaningful categories, also from a treatment perspective in the end. And the second thing that's important is that cirrhosis at one point has such a dominant outcome prediction for the patient that it's the second aspect of the disease. You know, the patient has NASH and then he developed cirrhosis. And by having developed cirrhosis, there's a momentum gaining in the disease process that really adds to the loss and quality of life, his mortality rate and complications. Those are the first two things uh, that come to my mind when we're discussing cirrhotic patients. So it's a huge basket of patients and we have to subsegment them wisely and the relevance to the patient is high because the outcome is so different than a non-cirrhotic patient. Stephen Harrison. And just building off of what Jorn said, in the field of drug development for, I don't know, the, for years and years, we felt like we needed to target patients with milder disease, show that the drug had a benefit, and then 
and only then move toward patients with cirrhosis for a couple reasons. Number one, the thought was, can we really move the needle in a cirrhotic patient? Can we make a difference? And to that regard, we, we generally bucket those into two different categories. Can we prevent progression to decompensation or can we regress fibrosis? And having said that, to Jorn's point, this is such a heterogeneous patient population. Not all cirrhotics are created equal. And we can look at cirrhotic patients that have clinically significant portal hypertension and those that don't. We can look at cirrhotic patients that have varices and those that don't and subdivide those into response rates of who's likely to respond or not respond. But it only has come to light recently, I guess maybe with the FDA comment in January about kind of how we look at these cirrhotic patients, and then more recently by some of the data that's been presented showing not only in bariatric surgery can we have an impact on fibrosis, even in this population, although the data is very, very small, but also with at least one of our therapies that have shown regression of cirrhosis. So that linked with some of the data, the post hoc analyses that have been done on the simtuzumab and silantertib trials, showing that in this advanced population of patients where there was regression of disease, there was actually improvement in long-term patient outcome measures. And when you put all that together, what we sense, what we take hope in, is the fact that this cirrhotic population is a huge unmet need and that actually we might be able to do something about it. Even if we don't show regression of disease, could we prevent progression of disease and actually have a meaningful impact on outcome measures? And the consensus is growing that we can do that and the agency is open to that. The regulatory authorities are open to that. And so it gives us an opportunity to now look at this patient population closer. Having said that, back to Jorn's point again, not all cirrhotics are created equal, and so we've really got to do a good job of subdividing those patients that we'd want to put in a clinical trial if we're going to, to show a benefit. If we just throw everybody in the same bucket, when we look at NASH trials, we don't typically put thousands and thousands of patients in there. We typically start with a phase two, which is several hundred patients at best, and use a couple different doses of drug and treat for a finite period of time. And so if we have a wide range of cirrhotics, we might see a benefit in a subpopulation, but to see a benefit in the whole population might be a bridge too far. So we have to do a really good job of identifying which patient population we're wanting to study. But that would be my introductory comment relative to this population. But it is a growing population as well. And I reflect back on a, a publication of Rune Sanyal published modeling the rate of rise in the prevalence and severity of NASH from 2015 to 2030. And I think he was spot on in that modeling. I mean, he, he quoted basically a 160% increase in the rate of decompensating disease and of progression to liver, well, to liver-related death and 137%, if my numbers are right, increase in the rate of hepatocellular carcinoma between 2015 and 2030. And 
just in the six years since that original prognostication, we've seen a rise in the rate of more advanced liver disease. Just looking at my original publication in gastro from our prevalence study in 2011 to our more recent publication in 2021, that 10-year time difference, we've seen a doubling in the rate of advanced fibrosis relative to NASH. So that prospective data is beginning to validate that modeling data that Arun and his colleagues presented a while back. So, Stephen, your last point's really interesting to me, and yours as well, because visually, I've always thought of NASH as being a little bit like an old river heading towards a waterfall. And it moves very slowly for a long period of time, and then it gets close to the waterfall, and it speeds up, and then it becomes turbulent, and then you go over the waterfall. That would presuppose that you're on a single linear path. What you folks are describing is a path that within the cirrhotic population isn't particularly a single path over the waterfall, but something a little more complicated than that, or am I hearing you wrong? Let me just quickly come in. I think that still the underlying driver, the inflammation, the steatotoxicity that builds up fibrosis and and causes cross-linking of collagens, it's not the fibrogenic response to that inflammation that drives it. So I think there can be bouts of progression. I don't think we know well that it's really slowly and linear. There's probably certain times where a patient really jumps certain stages and then he reduces weight a little bit, stabilizes and then maybe jumps again. So I'm not convinced it's really a linear increase. It's different in chronic viral hepatitis where you have the virus burning the liver all the time. But with this lifestyle associated disease, there's more heterogeneity to the progress. You made the point well that once you come to the waterfall, I think this is the time point where it really tips and, and the fibrosis burden is so high that additional disease characteristics, including shunting, altered blood flow, building up of portal hypertension, kick in and, and then injure the liver additionally. Does everybody come to the waterfall the same way? I mean, you said no, that there are ebbs and flows, right? But what I take out of Stephen's comment, maybe incorrectly, is that not only are there ebbs and flows, but depending upon exactly how cirrhosis develops within the patient, you might have different therapeutic interventions with what two patients who are both 20 meters away from the waterfall or 50 meters away from the waterfall. You might want to do different things because their disease, their path to the waterfall is presenting a little differently. At least that's how I'm hearing it. Yeah, true. And, and, and that's a tough one. You try to identify the underlying most relevant driver in the disease. And some it's genetic. Uh, we know that. The genetic background is critical. Some have uh, severe lifestyle, I'd call it, or nutritional errors where you can adjust by cutting out the orange juice or something on short notice. But then in others, it's just the poorly controlled diabetes. And that, that gets tougher. Diabetologists do their best. They, they get the HbCA, which one C down, but still disease progresses with regards to the liver phenotype. I don't think it's completely understood. I always try to identify an, a relevant driver to my patients and counsel them on this, looking at lifestyle, and then also thinking about the drugs I have available, even in clinical trials, and, and funnel them to that trial, but not sure we understood it completely. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next Wednesday, September 1st, with our guest Donna Cryer to explore how the Delta variant of COVID-19 will affect NASH treatment and clinical trials. It's always fun when Donna joins us to get the band back together. And this discussion has its roots in the very first days of our podcast. I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.